Hello again, and a very warm welcome to the Manufacturer Podcast. I'm Nick Peters. Today, we're going to meet someone very, very special. It's not often we can identify a single individual as having changed our world, but my guest today did just that, close to half a century ago, when he was a 32-year-old design engineer at Rolls-Royce. His name is Sir David McMurtry. Now, that's hardly a household name, but to manufacturers, he is the man who put the precision in precision engineering. He did this by inventing a tool, the touch-trigger probe, that enabled engineers to take highly accurate measurements of multiplaned objects for the very first time. Sir David's invention led to the creation of a company whose products can be found in any precision engineering facility around the world. Renishaw. I travelled to Renishaw's headquarters in the picturesque Gloucestershire village of Wooden Under Edge to meet him. Let me tell you, we spoke about a very great deal more than just measuring things. So David McMurtry, a warm welcome to the Manufacturer podcast. Let's go back to beginnings. I know the story is fairly well known, but if you just tell us the happy, happy coincidence, the happy circumstance that made you or gave you your first product and the start of Renishaw? Gosh, that's taxing the memory a bit. <laughs> yeah, um, it was all about uh, solving a problem that I had that brought to me when I was at Rolls-Royce. I was deputy chief designer at the time. And they had a, shop, a problem on the shop floor and I was asked to go down and have a look at it. And that was about measuring pipes for Concord and I took a one look at what they were doing and came very quickly to the conclusion that ain't, that ain't going to work. <laughs> so I went away and over a weekend I made the first touch trigger probe in my, I had a little workshop at home. So you made the first product that ultimately founded Renishaw. One weekend at home. And you can see when you, some of them are around. The first, the very first one was very simply made with plastic padding and turned and milled a few items and the whole thing, the original probes were made or made in that way. Well, the, the, the thing is that this was 1970, Yeah, 72. 72. Mm. Concorde had flown by then. Yes. And it had flown without the ability to measure some key components. Yes. So life before pure measurement, which is in many ways what you have developed over the last 40 years or so, must have been hit and miss. It, it cert well, it certainly was. I mean, each, each thing was individually inspected physically. These things were inspected uh, by inspectors and signed off by inspectors as safe without having the, necessarily the data or the measurements to prove the fact that they were safe. So it was amazing that Concord flew and without a computer in sight, you know, all the, all, all the calculations and everything were done, except for a few aerodynamic ones, it was an Elliott 803 valve type of computer, there. but all the, the, the stresses and everything for the internals of the engine stress calculations were all done manually with a, what amounted to is a long range slide rule, it was a rotary slide rule. The thing about the, the, the probe uh, that you f you first developed was because you were an employee at Rolls-Royce, it didn't belong to you in terms of its uh, intellectual property. It was You obviously saw that as a problem that could be overcome, but or, or did you? Was it something that you might have said, well, I'll just let Rolls-Royce have this, and might we never have seen Renishaw? 
was a very very good point of letting Rhenish, uh, Rolls Royce have it because they had the means to defend it. I didn't. So if I owned it, uh, everybody would have just ignored it because they knew I couldn't defend the patent. So we the, and we were very um, grateful when the first defender came along. Rolls Royce uh, brought out the attorneys and the big guns and fended them off. Eventually, um, John said it'd be a good idea if he bought the patent from them. This was your business partner, John Deere. Yes, right. Made a good decision then. So he eventually. Um, had the negotiations to purchase the the, the patents. But then, of course, at that time, we had the money in to, to be able to defend patents, in which we did. We had a, a number of cases that we defended in the States, which were very expensive and drawn-out cases. One of the things that we struggle with in this country is growing small businesses into medium-sized businesses. We've got a long tail, as we like to call it, in manufacturing. What was it about Renishaw that allowed you, bar one or two quite serious dips, to develop into a medium-sized, now a heavyweight manufacturing and solutions providing company? We were lo- I was lucky, of course, that helps a lot. Uh, but the, the, the real reason is we were profitable from day one. So the first recognise what was the value of the product you were selling to the customer and what does it cost to make? A lot of people look at the cost to make and put what they think is a reasonable profit on it. And that's not going to be good enough to make you profitable from day one. So we charged uh, a figure embarrassingly more than the cost to make it, and we were self-cash generating from day one. Was that because what you were doing was so groundbreaking, even on a global scale? Well, put it this way, the value of the product to the customer was much greater than the manufacturing cost, and we recognise that fact. But at the same time, you were pretty much leading in the market on a, on a global scale. The world was coming to your door, not you to them. Indeed. We had, uh, right from the start, we had one of the leading manufacturers, Brown & Sharp at the time, uh, the, the chairman arrived at Wooden Under Edge unannounced, and we had that happened also for the Japanese contingent. They, they came to see us, so we didn't have to sell it. It's nice for the customer to come to you rather than you go to the customer. So in that sense, you're, you're not really typical of a manufacturing t- tier 321 company in this country which probably has quite a number of competitors they've got to fight against to get for the business, in which case they don't have the luxury, like yourself, of charging an exorbitant price, I think you said, or something similar. Oh, I wouldn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) A fair price. (laughs) (laughs) So everybody could benefit. We, We benefited and they benefit. And to that extent, manufacturing itself has benefited because the old adage, you can't manage what you can't measure... Yeah. Everybody has got something from Renishaw if they're in the serious precision engineering game. Okay, I mean, that's the whole basis of the business, to, to be able to make things more reliable and more predictable. And uh, therefore you can, you can measure what you're making and then see the variance, control the variance. I mean, that's the whole basis of the business. You, uh, you were encouraged by our friends in the City of London to go take the company public. Is that something that nowadays you regret, or was it a good move for you? 
well, I, 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 I regret it, but uh, at the time, they sort of knocked on the door and said, you know, you could lose the, the lot and have eggs in other baskets and don't put all your eggs in one basket and all the rest of it. And it sounded a good story at the time and the, the advantage of getting the publicity of the city and all the rest of it. Yes, and um, hindsight, no, I should not have done it. But then I didn't know I wasn't going to go bust and <laughs> hindsight. So obviously we made the decision that we could put eggs in other baskets and uh, still have a successful company. But what I didn't realise is that the very fact that the procedures of public company means that it is a drag hit, is a a lot, a lot of things you've got to do that I'd rather not do. So is it fair to suggest that they probably got more out of you than you got out of them? Well, I think the if you look at the, the profits over the years, yes, that's a fair suggestion. <laughs> what will happen to Renishaw? What is your plan? Because, again, one of the issues that we have in this country is that Companies grow to a certain size, and then there's, there's always seen to be, well, we need to split it up, or somebody needs to come out, buy it, and then they split it up. How are you going to protect Renishaw as a company that will continue to have its own integrity as it is today? Just by staying alive. It maybe you can give us a secret <laughs> of that one. <laughs> You'll be able to sell it at an because even more exorbitant cost. In this country, in the very fact that the Republic, eventually, sometime in the future when I eventually die, the control will have to go. And that doesn't happen, as you know, in Germany. It's uh, different systems. So they can contain the ownership of companies like this. And they've got lots of very good companies propping up the economy that we don't. So the very fact that every company, every car company, uh, even the last one, like Morgan, eventually has to get sold off if debt duties catch them out. So by the very fact that debt duties have to be paid sometime, you you have the situation in this country that I didn't, I don't recognise now of course, but car industry is gone and now it's owned by other people who make the decisions somewhere else and decide to make things somewhere else instead of here. Like the Germans, it's a part of the family or live there and everything else, different culture. As soon as it's old, it's, it's, it is, there's difficulties. Well, I wonder what it is about this country, because it, I meet an awful lot of manufacturers and owners, and I wonder why these great little companies, most of them, can't grow into bigger companies. And I, I wonder what it is in the, in, in the national psyche. Uh, maybe it's because we've always been traders for centuries. We're not necessarily been business people. Um, whereas on the continent they had to be business people because they were living next door to the people they were trading with. They didn't have to get in a ship to go there. I don't know what it is. I wonder if you've got any ideas around that. Because basically, uh, all the business, uh, if you look in Germany, this is successful. They've done what I've basically done: come up with something that um, at the at the start, same as was, come up with something that there isn't a competitor to. And if there isn't a competitor, as we're back to what I said earlier, you can charge what it's worth to the customer, and he's happy, and we're happy too. And that gives you the, the uh, way to make decent margins. You have to make decent margins if you want to grow. Simple as that. 
or else if you borrow it, somebody else owns the company and makes the decisions on your behalf and then you're not controlling your company. So if once you've got the ability to make the decisions, and the philosophy really is very simple, do something that nobody else is doing. That's getting harder and harder these days, isn't it? Not really, no. There's plenty of opportunities because, well, IT, for example, it's they're all over the place. So where did Google come from? Where did where Facebook come from? It's not hard, or you just got to spot them. <laughs> That's the main thing. It's not hard, you just got to spot them. You'll take that one to the bank. <laughs> but it's a, it is the educational system that teaches you away from looking for something original, and do do the do do it by rule. You know, by basically, this is the way you do it. <laughs> Homogenisation yeah, of you, thinking. You, you, yes, you just uh, do what everybody else is doing, but do it a little bit better than everybody else, and you make a little bit... You might stay alive if you do that. That is sort of the attitude that seems seems to be. I know that you're, you're, you're immensely proud at Renishaw of your track record with apprenticeships, um, and you're not doing it altruistically. The apprentices are really the, the feedstock of this business, are they not? You've made some incredible advances with them. I think uh, both apprentices and graduates, depending on what sort of business you've got to, f- to fulfil the essential jobs to make the whole thing work, both of them are essential. And apprentices that come up right through to the top are very usually very, very good. If you go out and try and buy people in from some other source, you don't know them as well. You know, they don't know what their, what their experiences really are and if they're really relevant and it's too late. It's about family and uh, that's, I think, exactly why the Germans have been so successful about it. There are fam- there's a lot of family companies. A lot of our manufacturing is completely governed and controlled by foreign ownerships, as we said, in the car industry and things like that, which does give a bit of uncertainty. I'd like to see a lot of it more uh, owned by people resident in here. Is that a function of the way that capital operates in this country? It's attitude, and uh, you know, I mean, this is how people behave. For example, you know, you're not going to shut down a plant if you live next to it. Your, your windows would be broken, <laughs> and you're more—you know, are obviously more aware of uh, that your community you live in. You don't want to harm. But if you're somewhere else, in the other side of the world, you haven't got that, that desire to make sure you're not harming the community you live in. Is, that, is what you're saying an argument against globalisation? Has, has globalisation been good for Renishaw? Uh, and does that matter? Would you say that globalisation has still not necessarily been good for British business? Well, we need to export because we've got no natural resources. We don't... We, all, our, all, the, all the fuel burnt on the, on the cars and everything, all import. We've got to get dollars, we've got to create wealth to be able to live it. I know the government tends to either borrow it or print it, but that certainly will come back and bite us very hard. We have to actually gener- generate wealth ourselves because we have no natural resources. It'd be nice to be in Norway or a Dubai or something like that where you have natural resources. But we actually used to, but we... <laughs> we used to, but unfortunately we burnt them all out. <laughs> they exhausted their supply. So we bring, you know, obviously, the, as you mentioned, the steel problem there, we bring, I think, the coal and the, and the raw materials from the other side of the world and then add British labour and expect to be competitive. It's very difficult. I'm just wondering what you feel, as a sort of closing thought, 
What do you think about the state of manufacturing in the UK at the moment? If, 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 uh, if you weren't Sir David McMurtry, but you were, you were Prime Minister David McMurtry and could wave a magic wand, what would you do first to try and make things better for manufacturers in this country? I think they, you should take a real look at the German model and take a real look at the success of manufacturing in Germany as a wealth creator for them and improve on that model. I think people have looked at that many times, but I suspect government hasn't looked at it, and maybe that's what you're saying. I think government hasn't made the, 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 laid the groundwork that makes it possible. It's a long-term view, and governments are only in for a very short period of time. It doesn't hold their attention long enough to make that successful. And nor does it hold the attention of private equity companies or city investors who are always looking for a, a quick, quick turn. Book. It is not a quick book solution, but we need a long-term solid solution rather than relying on winning the pools now and again. Are you optimistic that things are changing in this country or do we need some kind of shake-up or maybe even a short, sharp shock, which we may end up getting at the end of this year? Well, I mean, what's been happening in... Brexit, of course, doesn't make anybody optimistic. You're, to actually be in the same markets, we were, what, 95, 6% export? And Europe is the main export. We don't want any barriers. We want friends. We don't want any enemies. And when it comes to uh, regulations and things that government put together for health and safety and everything else, we don't want to have comply with one standard A and another standard B. It's just putting costs up. Why can't we all be one happy big family together? And then we could all benefit. And then uh, we wouldn't have any reason to fall out with one another, which causes problems in the past. Trivia fans might like to know that the extraordinary house that was used in the finale of one series of the revived Sherlock Holmes was built for Sir David and his wife. They prefer to live in more modest accommodation, but the remarkable Swinhay House, where master blackmailer Charles Augustus Magnuson was cornered by Sherlock Holmes, will certainly be a monument to Sir David McMurtry, but it will pale in significance compared with the Touch Trigger probe. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time, from me and all of us here at The Manufacturer, goodbye for now.